Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're in the severalth week of this worship series. I lose track. The cries of our hearts. We are reading over these several weeks through Mark's gospel, really the third quarter um, of that gospel. It's the end of Jesus's embodied ministry, and there is escalating tension as he travels eventually southward to Jerusalem. And in this section of the gospel, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Mark has Jesus try three different times to tell his friends what is about to happen to him. These three discussions of his fate are called passion predictions, where passion is from the Latin, passio. It means suffering. And I say that he tries three times because it really doesn't go all that well in terms of their understanding of what he's actually saying. So in chapter 8 from a couple Sundays ago, you might remember he told them all this for the first time, his first passion prediction, and Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, telling him that he ought not say things like that, that God won't give him more than he can handle. Everything will be fine. Jesus strongly rejects the sunshine that Peter is blowing up his ass, calling him Satan, actually, for trying to make his own discomfort disappear. To get the other two passion predictions on the table tonight, we're going to have a two-part reading, one part from near the end of chapter 9 and then another part from the end of chapter 10. And we're pairing them together tonight because Jesus' best friends are so spectacularly bad at hearing him, and I think maybe we have a shot at being better at it than that. The theme for tonight is we cry out to be known. Part one is from Mark chapter nine. They went on from there, that is to say the mountain of transfiguration, and passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of humanity is to be betrayed into human hands. And they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way here? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all, servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. 
John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him. No one who does a deed of power in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Whoever's not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink, gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ, will by no means lose the reward. Part two from chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Humanity will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Mm-hmm. What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They replied, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left, it's not even mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Humanity came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of y'all know that I have a fear of natural water, which I variously attribute to having been raised in the Texas panhandle where there is no natural water, or to watching the movie Jaws when I was, frankly, way too little. But that fear was mitigated in my youth by my mom's status as a Red Cross certified lifeguard, a certification that she kept up during all the years of my childhood. So it was kind of psychologically perfect, having a phobia that could be answered by the strength of my mother's body and her love for me. Until... The summer, our family went camping at Possum Kingdom Lake, 
We didn't know anything about possums or lakes. And we were too broke for real to have any of the real fun in the sun that a Texas lake affords. But mom and dad found the money to rent a rowboat for the day. And out on the lake, we went, all five. My two siblings and I, in short order, became rather obsessed with the question of what would happen if the boat should capsize, throwing us all into the warm, muddy, lakey water. Or rather, we became obsessed with knowing who mom would save first. Would she go with her gut? Instinctively going for the smallest and the weakest, meaning my little brother, at least for a couple more summers. Or maybe my dad, as he would lose his glasses in the depths, leaving him functionally blind. Or maybe me, because my swimming was more like a desperate dog paddle. Or would she have the wherewithal to make a rational decision, rescuing dad first and then the rest of us in descending order of age and strength so we could each help with the effort to get the next littlest one back in the boat? Or, and this is what we suspected, would she save first the one she loved most? And who, we wondered and bickered over for the rest of that day, would that be? My sister, mm, the one most like my mom, the peacemaker, the sensible one. My brother, the long hoped for boy, the most difficult birth by far, the cherished or depending on who you asked, spoiled youngest child. We all agreed that I was in trouble in this race a preteen showing every warning sign of pending adolescent insurrection. But we all knew, we really knew, that it would definitely be dad. He was the only one of us she had actually chosen to spend her life with from among other human beings, right? We always figured that dad would win if it came to a contest in her heart. It's astonishing, the human compulsion to compare oneself to others, to size up and sort and rank other individuals in order to assert one's own placement in the pecking order. Pecking order comes from observing chickens, it turns out, something I learned a few years ago when we got the chickens that came with the homestead that established flocks of chickens don't like new chickens. And they peck them with their sharp beaks to the point of drawing blood, even unto death, to make sure every chicken knows her place. Hence, pecking order. We humans are happy to do that too, not with beaks and not to the blood usually, but in our own minds and sometimes out loud, pulling certain people down if it helps to raise us up. Picture Jesus' closest friends, the ones who have traveled with him, slept under the stars with him, cooked over an open fire with him, suffered food poisoning with him, prayed with him, helped him accomplish his ambitious plan to share the good news of God's reign with all their religious kin, 
12 of them have been especially designated as apostles. And three of those, only three, have been invited up that mountain to witness his transfiguring heart to heart with Moses and Elijah. No doubt Peter, James, and John have been gloating. So now as they travel, they're pecking at each other, arguing, Mark says, about which of them is the goat. And I would love to know what criteria they are using to rank their own greatness. Have they kept a tally of successful healings and exorcisms attributed to each? Are they counting baptisms the way Church of Christ preachers at big tent revivals used to count how many they had dunked? Are they keeping a record of salvations the way our live stream channel, which was developed by an evangelical tech outfit, encourages us to do? We do not, by the way do that, believing that God never lets go anything God has made. We are not waiting for some existential binary switch to flip from unsaved to saved so that we can count you as a Galileo success. We just don't really think it works that way. And anyway, we love each other better than that around here. Maybe the disciples were like us kids in that boat, just wondering which of them Jesus loved most. Which one of them he would save first if all of them were drowning? Worrying each of them that they might not have been lovable enough yet to warrant his prioritization. Just pecking each other down in order to raise themselves up. So this is the time that Jesus goes for an object lesson, putting a little child into his arms and asking them all to pay attention. If I was Jesus, I'd just come down from here right now, go into the kids' corral and grab Rinley, but I'm not Jesus, so we'll just have to imagine. And he says, imagine, you see this kid? This one right here. This kid? This kid is me. This kid who can do nothing for themselves, this kid who has no bragging rights to any accomplishment, who is completely vulnerable and dependent on the kindness of others for their survival, this kid is me, vulnerable, waiting to be received. You welcome this little one, you welcome me. You welcome me, and you welcome God. God is like this little kid, vulnerable, waiting to be received. Be more like this child, you'll be more like God. Huh. While they're scratching their heads over that one, <laughs> one of those close friends of Jesus decides to try a tactic that religious people are still trying even today. When Jesus says something complicated, I mean something really hard, something that might cost you something if you take it to heart, <laughs> You just point at somebody else and say, yeah, but we're still way better than them, right? Mark 9, 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> just in case it's not clear, here's how this strategy is supposed to work. Jesus says something truly difficult, like, love your enemy, or you give them something to eat, or judge not, lest ye be judged, or 
Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus' followers, upon hearing it, Squirrel! Gay! Abortion! We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because they were not following us. See, it's a game of distraction. You just point at someone else and they're perceived screw-ups and deflect attention away from our own real screw-ups, hoping to rise in the ranks by comparison. <laughs> you notice that Jesus is having none of it. He shuts down the competition, saying that's just not even the game he's playing. If they're not against us, they're for us. And anyway, more help for more people is better, right? And that should have been the end of it. Except it wasn't. A few days later, for yet a third time, he works up the emotional energy to lay it all out for them again in more detail now than the first two times. He says, look, we're going to Jerusalem where they are waiting for me. I'm going to be arrested and handed over to the VRPs, the very religious persons, for a heresy trial. They're going to collude with the empire to stick me with sedition, which is enough for a death sentence under Roman law. My execution will not be quick and painless. It'll be drawn out and painful and humiliating. Physical and psychological torture, I'm talking. I have it on good authority that death won't get the last word, but the road from here to there is going to be miserable. Capiche? They do not capiche. The brothers, James and John, like kids in a rowboat, not longing to be loved because they are so loved already and they know it, but longing to be loved more than everybody else, longing to be elevated above the rest because we find meaning in competition, because we derive our identity from winning, even if the only way to win is to tear everyone else down so we can climb over them, because more satisfying than a good meal is the satiation of our insecurities by asserting our superiority. Ignoring completely their friend's forecast of his own suffering, James and John skip to the possibility of grand reward in days to come, asking for places of honor at Jesus' right and left hands. They do not say, but might as well have, that these other schlubs will have to find their own seats in general admission. It is a galling request. One wonders why the other ten are so mad at the sons of Zebedee when they hear about it later. It could be because no one should ask such a thing of someone who is vulnerable, naming their own worst fears about to come true. Or it could be because they just didn't think to ask for it first. One suspects that it is the latter, given Jesus' third and final explanation, that when you are with him, the pecking order is reversed, that the pecked on will be first and the peckers will be last. Notice with me that the disciples of Jesus again and again and again choose to define themselves in competition with each other and with everybody else. It's not enough to be good they need to be 
better. It's not enough to be loved. They need to be loved most. It's not enough to be close to Jesus. They need to be closest to his heart and to be acknowledged as such. This is how they will know who they are. And then turn your eyes upon Jesus, who is almost overshadowed in these stories by the strutting disciples, their chests puffed out. He is almost drowned out by their loud, insistent voices, rebuking, arguing, asking. This is my son, the beloved, the voice on the mountain of transfiguration said, listen to him. And so we should. Three times he has said to his friends, it's about to get bad. Three times he has told them, I think it's going to hurt. Again and again and again, he has named his anticipation of suffering, predicted his passion. What does he want that they keep not giving him? Not for them to protect him, to keep it from happening. He's already decided to accept the inevitable consequences of living a life of love in a world so broken that it cannot receive him. Not for them to shush his fears and tell him the lie that it's all going to be just fine. I ask you, what does anybody want when they walk clear-eyed through the worst thing that's ever happened to them? Through the valley of the shadow of death. Through their suffering. Through their passion. Does it seem believable to you that what Jesus keeps asking for in his recitation of dread is compassion, come with passion, suffering, to enter into someone else's pain, to suffer with the one you love? What if any one of them had stopped doing the calculus of their own self-esteem for a minute, shut down the mental competition for a minute, long enough to offer compassion for his passion? What if James or John or Peter had simply said, Oh, Jesus. Oh, we had no idea. Oh, I'm so sorry for how much this hurts already. We're right here, right beside you. We'll go as far as we can with you. What you are about to endure, you don't have to endure alone. Indeed, friends, what if his repetition of his coming suffering was in addition to being his true expression of an inevitable future he did not want, also an exercise for their atrophied compassion muscle, 
an invitation to a new and better way to identify themselves and everybody else? What if in proximity to Jesus, competition is nonsensical and compassion is normalized? What if we are meant to opt out of every game where for you to win, others have to lose? What if capitalism is as brutal as Squid Game, where your win comes at great cost to the losers? What if polarized democracy makes it impossible for us to recognize each other as members of the same human family? What if Instagram makes us or our kids hate our bodies by comparison with filtered fake photos? What if racism is perpetuated by a constant gnawing hunger to feel secure by feeling superior? What if the Olympics of wokeness makes us turn our brutality on each other? What if religion, what if our religion lets us feel big by making small the ones who used to make us feel small? What if we just keep playing the same game with the script flipped, so we come out on top. Listen, I've been protesting this sermon all week. I've been reminding Jesus that the competition for status is being brutally played all around us, and the stakes are high. People that I love stand to lose out there. They get knocked down by people who are scrambling to the top. We can't win if we refuse to play. I've been telling him, I've been telling Jesus. And he keeps telling me because, in case you hadn't noticed, he is relentlessly repetitive when he needs to be. And he knows this game. And he's already lost. He's already sunk to the bottom, pecked, betrayed, and humiliated, and hurt, and killed, so that he could show compassion to us, suffer with us, vulnerable, waiting to be received. He hopes, I think, that if we can find some compassion for him in these stories, we can find some for everybody else in our world, including ourselves. He hopes, I think, to entice us into a new game, a game of imagination in which we turn all our energy toward the very likely, very real suffering of each other. Be kind, the saying goes, for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. No doubt there are systems, maybe even inside our own minds, that reward those who run past the heavy burdened to get there first. 
But that is not this system. That is not the one that Jesus invites us to learn and practice together. In this one, we stop for the one with heavy burdens. And we put our hands under it, if we can, to lighten that load. And we slow our pace so that we all go together. And we see that Jesus is just ahead, not too far, waiting patiently for us to catch up. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.